What are the opportunities for biotechs on the Chinese market? Get answers to this question in the podcast episode with the PFC Group. In this episode, we talk about the PFC Group, the capital market landscape in China, deal structuring, clinical strategies for and why affordability and accessibility of new drugs matter the most in China. I mean, Christian, that's a great point you bring up because one of the things that we realized at KBP when I had a team in China and a team in the U.S. For about BFC Group, we are a leading healthcare investment bank in China. Also have footprints all over the world, including U.S., U.K., Korea, and Japan and India. We closed um, more than 100 deals with over 8 billion in total deal value. You know, China is now the second largest ph uh, pharma market in the world, with Japan being third. Yeah, in the past uh, few years, like most of our BFC clients coming to China are uh, still in clinical phase one. But there's a flip side of the coin, which is that the China market really rewards innovation in, in antibiotic research. Possibility, there's a growing middle class in China that, you know, that are looking for changes, the quality of life. So at the end of the day, it's like any uh, group you're trying to engage with, you want to get a personal connection. Uh, you want to educate and not sell, but really educate it. Looking at the first quarter of 2022, 18 new drugs were approved in China. 12 of them came from the West. The speakers in this episode are Dr. Chia and Chin. She has more than 20 years of research and management experience at Dubon, the Upjohn company, Pharmacia and Upjohn, Pharmacia, Lily and MPI Research, now CRL. Her R&D experience includes research leadership in asthma, rheumatoid arthritis, cardiovascular, and neurodegeneration. Dr. Jean's research has been published in over 35 peer-reviewed articles and book chapters. She has a PhD in chemistry from the University of South Carolina and postdoctoral research at Indiana University. T-Spore is venture partner at the BFC Group in the United States. TIS has worked 25 years in biotech in over 10 countries, from startup stage through to IPOs on Wall Street. In addition to multiple board roles, he has held senior executive and CEO roles at KPP, Biosciences, GE Healthcare, Azure RX, Biopharma, Fluoropharma, and Intelligent Material Solutions. As an analyst at Credit Suisse and JP Morgan, he covered the biotechnology and medical devices sectors. Pharmacy degree from the University of Toronto, graduate studies at McMaster University, and an MBA from Columbia Business School are his education. Shirley Lou is principal of the BFC business development and leadership team in leading and facilitating multiple licensing transactions, including Arawife, Leap, Sentara. Prior to working at BFC, she had rich experience in professional services for Hong Kong, US, and China listed companies at PricewaterhouseCoopers. Her roles included annual auditing, IPO, 
and senior nodes issuance. She also engaged in market entry projects at AstraZeneca and cross-border M&A transactions in Sinolink Securities. She has an AICPA certificate, bachelor degree from Ohio State University, and an MBA from the China Europe International Business School. The BFC Group is a China-based investment banking firm with a focus on healthcare, merger and acquisition, licensing, and financing. The group works with leading healthcare companies in the United States, Europe, and Asia. With a first-hand operational experience in both the United States and China, the group has a deep understanding of the challenges their clients face when establishing or expanding their company's presence outside of the home market. I hope you enjoy this episode the same way as I did. Thank you very much for today that we can talk about uh, China and the great opportunities for life science entrepreneurs. Um, Shirley Lu is today on the episode, Chien uh, and uh, Tis Spor from uh, China and the United States. Uh, let me start with a little bit of uh, an introduction why I believe it's important to talk about uh, the relations with China. It's basically from my past and my hist from my history. Uh, in my first impression I got about China was in the 70s. Uh, it was basically martial arts movies from China, which I loved watching like a boy. And the first real trip to China was in 2014. It was an invitation from the Chinese Shaolin Temple. They have a subsidiary here in Vienna. And it was uh, a trip to the Henan province to train with the Shaolin monks. And with that picture in mind that they had from the 70s with these uh, medieval uh, martial arts movies that dated somewhere in 1500, 1600, 1700, um, I traveled from Vienna to Berlin and then uh, boarded a plane to Beijing. And I hope it's by the city name, right? But Chinese is inexistent. Uh, then to the capital of the Henan province. I think it's Shangshu. And what was really astonishing for me was how modern the airports were. I mean, there was Berlin Tegel, it was the old airport. And then the modern airport in Beijing, it was felt like uh, having a trip to the future. In 2017, I did the next trip to China. It was with Austrian politicians. We had a round trip uh, in China. We first went to Hong Kong and then went, also I hope I spelled the name right, to Guangzhou in a few kilometers, uh, I think, westwards in China, and then to Shanghai. And what impressed me back then in 2017 was that uh, I thought in 2014 I have a trip to the future, but uh, it was further in the future in 2017. There was such a huge difference in development in China. The development speed was so amazing that in only three years, uh, the airports became bigger. The buildings were astonishing. I never saw, saw such big skyscrapers. And on the trip, I also heard for the first time uh, the big goal of China to become the innovation leader of the world. And this was the first time when I thought hmm, it makes sense to build relations between Europe and China uh, to work together because we have uh, great scientists here in Europe and also if China intends to uh, move further towards scientific innovation. 
basically in life science, maybe there are great touch points. And uh, this is my background of story why I thought uh, now in 2022, for me it's five years that uh, I didn't see China. And I want to learn with your help uh, what changed in China in the last five years, uh, what's the direction in which China is going, and how can life science entrepreneurs from Europe and also from other parts of the world uh, access the Chinese ecosystem in the best way. And I'm very happy that uh, today we can talk with the BFC group. And I would like to hand over uh, to Chien for, for her introduction. Yes, uh, good morning, good evening, wherever you may be. I am Jian Chen. I am uh, with the business development group, with BFC group, although I am based in the U.S. So uh, my history, my background, my education is um, I have a PhD in chemistry, and I've always done discovery research in big pharma for over 25 years, and I also spent some time in preclinical tox CRO. So my role at BFC Group in the U.S. is really to work with, uh, you know, my colleagues based in Shanghai and also uh, our clients as they take their innovations outside of China into the, you know, rest of the world. So very good to be here. Good to see you. Uh, Tis. <laughs> Yes, uh, thanks for having me on, on the program, Christian. Good morning, good afternoon. So I'm a nuclear pharmacist by training. Um, I worked for a company called Amersham, which is a global company. And my first exposure to Hong Kong and in the China market was fixing Hong Kong's first nuclear pharmacy and moving that forward. Fast forward, I went to Wall Street as a publishing analyst. And then I took several companies public. And including, we made a reasonable attempt with a Chinese company called KBP Biosciences. I was formerly their CEO. Um, and really was interesting having a team of, of 60 terrific people based in China um, and also a team in the U.S. to really help a Chinese company become a global company. And I had a terrific time there, some great experiences. Um, and so I'd love to share my thoughts on you know, really what's interesting for Western companies into China and China companies into the West. Thank you very much. Great expertise here in, in the room. I love that. Uh, Shirley, could you tell us a little bit more about you and the BFC group? Yeah, sure. Uh, good morning, good evening. Uh, so my name is Shirley Lu. Uh, I'm based in Shanghai. Uh, my background is finance. So before BFC Group, I worked for PricewaterhouseCoopers as an auditor. And also I had experience in AstraZeneca strategy team and also cross-border M&A transaction team in Sinolink securities. Uh, currently in BFC Group, I am in charge of the BD licensing business, including the cross-border licensing, joint venture, financing transactions. So this including the doing the in-licensing assets from the ex-China biotech companies and also out-licensing assets to global companies. That's great. May I ask, uh, before we start, uh, jump on the presentation about the BFC yeah. Group, where you are located? So we have uh, Shanghai. Uh, today mm -hmm. and uh, yeah. these value into the United States? Uh, so I'm normally based on the East Coast of the United States. So I'm a venture partner with uh, BFC Group, but usually I'm anywhere where there's an airplane. So I could be <laughs> anywhere in the world. It happens today. I'm in Indianapolis, but normally I'm on the East Coast of the, of, uh, the U.S. Indianapolis, isn't that the, the famous IndyCar racing center? Uh, there are, <laughs> yeah, that's one of the many things that's famous here. 
<laughs> uh, this is the only thing I guess I, I know about Indianapolis. Uh, and Tian, you are yeah. in uh, value yeah. today. I, I am based in the U.S. as I mentioned earlier, but in mm. the middle of the country. So I am based in Michigan, about a hundred miles uh, west of Ann Arbor. So halfway between Detroit and Chicago. But I have lived in Indianapolis, where the <laughs> Indy 500 car race is every year. Very exciting. I think this is amazing uh, because when I think back to 2014, such a video conference was not possible um, with connecting the United States, Europe and, and Shanghai in one call with a crystal mm -hmm. clear connection. It's so amazing how technology advanced in the last years. Well, I mean, Christian, that's a great point you bring up because one of the things that we realized at KBP when I had a team in China and a team in the U.S., is that we were able to have these sort of face-to-face -face meetings. And even with the COVID shutdown, um, business as usual for our company, because we were able to keep going, interacting with our colleagues. We just got used to this kind of dynamic. So it's not a substitute for an in-person meeting, but not every meeting has to be in person. So again, the technology is amazing. That's true. I couldn't agree more. Um, Shadi, would you like to lead us through the uh, BFC Group's history? Yeah, sure. Um, I share my screen. So there's a couple of slides I prepared for for you. Okay. So before we start our discussion about China market and the potential uh, uh, collaborations between China companies and the rest of the world and uh, European companies, um, I would like to uh, share some uh, background information First of all, about BSC Group, and secondly, the capital market landscape and BD transaction landscape in China. So first of all, about BFC Group, we are a leading healthcare investment bank in China. So as you probably already noticed that we headquarter in Shanghai, but we also have footprints all over the world, including US, UK, Korea, and Japan, and India. And we do the domestic and the cross-border transactions, um, but we only focus on the healthcare sector. Um, the BFC is founded in 2011, and so far we've been closed um, more than 100 deals with over $8 billion in total deal value. And most of our team members are uh, science background or coming from the industry background. And here are the three business we do. The first one is capital raising, second one is M&A, and third is BD licensing, as I mentioned, also uh, both in licensing and out licensing. And here's our global presence. Uh, we have colleagues and uh, partners all over the world. Also, we have conferences every year, twice every year. One is in Shanghai. The other one is in San Francisco. Uh, San Francisco one is uh, in uh, during the JP Morgan week. So this is some pictures uh, we had for the previous years. And next about capital market landscape in China. So first of all, I want everyone to take a look at of the uh, U.S. market. So here you can see the number of IPOs for biotech companies in the past few years. I mean, past 10 years, maybe. It's been climbing, slightly climbing every year, and it's peaked in 2021. There were 64 um, biotech companies IPOs in NASDAQ. But this year, because of the really bad macro environment, there 
are only four IPOs in the first half of 2022. And then let's take a look at the China market. So on the left-hand side, uh, it is the Shanghai stock market. So background information about Shanghai stock market is that it's just opened in 2018. So the first IPO for uh, Shanghai stock market is in 2019. And this stock market is only for the innovative companies. So here are the number of the IPOs for biotech companies. And you can see there are 15 and 12 in the past couple, couple of years. And this year, in the first half of this year, there were nine IPOs uh, happening in star market. And in right-hand side, it is Hong Kong market. Um, this is also the IPO numbers uh, for the biotech companies. And this uh, first half of this year, there were three IPOs for biotech companies. So in this page, it will be more clear uh, for audience to uh, compare the two markets, the Nasdaq, com- uh, Nasdaq market and the China market. So on the left-hand side, we can see the number of the IPOs for biotech companies. The China IPOs are less than 50% of the uh, U.S. market. But on this year, for the first half of this year, China has outperformed than the Nasdaq market. Nasdaq were four and China was 12. And on the right-hand side, um, it is a um, total proceeds raised at IPOs. Even the number didn't catch up the uh, U.S. market, but uh, we can see that in 2020 and 2021, the total proceeds raised at IPO is almost the same as the U.S. market for the China market. And for the um, this year, the first half of this year, it's even five times over U.S. market. So there's not too much we can complain about the secondary capital market in China. And then let's take a look at the primary market. So here are the left-hand side is the total number of the financing events happening in China for the healthcare sector. So after COVID-19, um, there actually there are more investors and um, I mean, either individual investors or the institutional investors, they started to more uh, focusing on the healthcare sector. So we can see the events um, um, uh, increased a lot in 2021. And this year, the first half of this year, even we have lockdowns in Shanghai and many other cities for three months. Um, the events still uh, reached to almost a thousand financing events for only half of this year. Um, and if we break down by uh, sectors, we can see one third of the uh, financing events coming from pharmaceutical sector and one third is coming from medical devices. And one third is coming from the services and rest of them are CROs or CDMOs. And it's um, uh, in terms of the rounds, it's um, from starting from the angel to all the way to the B round. And now let's look deeper into the pharmaceutical sector. So it's uh, basically consistent with the overall healthcare sector. It's um, 
increased a lot in 2021, but still uh, continues the trend in this first half of this year. If, uh, in terms of the uh, modality, we can see most of the biotech companies are focusing on small molecule, followed by cell therapy and gene therapy and also antibody drugs. Yeah, so um, the capital market is uh, pretty good here in China. Uh, it's catching up the U.S. market. And in this year, with this very um, terrible macro environment, um, the global capital market is really bad, but China is still performing very well. Um, so, yeah, again, we can't not complain about the capital market here in China. Um, and next, I want to uh, share some overview about BD transactions in China. Um, so the first graph we can see is a China-related uh, BD transactions. It's slightly uh, increasing every year. Um, but this year, uh, if we analyze the first half, uh, uh, the, the, the deals of the first half of this year, it still decreased almost 50%. But it's consistent with the global deals. So for the global, this is not a very good year to do um, a lot of transactions. Do you enjoy this episode? Then please like, follow, and share. And uh, in terms of the deal type, you can see most of the China-related uh, transactions are uh, licensing deals, followed by joint, some joint venture or M&A transactions. And now let's take a look at of the uh, in-licensing deals. So uh, in the past five, six years, it's been increasing every year. Um, but this year, the number of the in-licensing deals has been uh, dropped 50 by 50% at least. Um, but if we look at the percentage of the partner companies in this in-licensing deals, which means the licensee is a China company and the licensor is a company outside China. So the cross-border percentage is uh, around 70%. So um, during this environment, the in China companies, they are still looking for more assets from outside China rather than uh, in China. So the trend is still continues from to looking assets outside China. So there are still a lot of opportunities for US company or European companies to uh, find a partnership here in China. And this next one is about out-licensing. So uh, I would say um, um, the 2020, year 2020 is a starting point of China going to the global. So this year, um, there are 40 companies successfully out-license their asset to the global market. And this trend continues. And even though the total out-licensing deals decreased, but we can see here in the green one, the 21 deals in the first half of this year is a cross-border out-licensing deal, which means the China innovative drugs enter into the global market. So if we analyze it, it will be 42 for this year. So the trend continues for out-licensing. Um, yeah, so that's pretty much um, the overview I shared with our audience. And definitely, we do have more detailed analysis and more detailed breakdowns and more detailed 
on like top transactions happening in the recent years. But um, given the limited time we have, I only share this much today, but I am happy to share more details if uh, our audience would like to know more. You can sure. feel free to contact us. We can also have a second podcast recording focusing on uh, <laughs> innovation in China that uh, reaches the global market. Um, yeah. Let me ask you some questions to the presentation. Um, when I look at uh, China as a whole, so the big question or the first question that comes to my mind is, um, which opportunities do you see for biotechs in China uh, to take their innovations to the Chinese market? Stay with us. We'll be right back. You love listening to podcasts, but have you ever thought about starting your own podcast? Maybe you want to build a brand, grow your business, or are looking for an excuse to talk about your favorite hobby. Whatever your reason for making a podcast, Buzzsprout is the place to start. Since 2009, Buzzsprout has helped over 300,000 people launch their own podcasts. Buzzsprout walks you step-by-step -step through the whole process and will give you powerful tools to start, grow, and monetize your podcast. Ready to get started? Click the link in the show notes to get our free step-by-step -step guide to starting your podcast today. Yeah, 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 definitely. There's, um, um, I would say there's a lot of uh, opportunities for innovative companies to, biotech companies to enter into China. Um, um, as I mentioned that, on China companies are still very actively looking for the innovative drugs from outside China uh, compared to the domestic innovative drugs. Although uh, the innovation is catching up in China, but you know, the US market and the European market, there are really good, amazing drugs that we can meet the unmet uh, medical needs here in China. So they are still very popular. So, I mean, and one of the things that... the company to come to China. <laughs> Sorry, okay. so, Yeah, no, so Christian, one of the things that I think is really important to look at is the, the pace of innovation and where it's going. So it's not just where is the market on the demand side for the dollar spent for patients. It's also on where is the dollar spent as relates to R&D work and where things are going. You know, in terms of market size and scale, you know, China is now the second largest ph uh, pharma market in the world, with Ch uh, Japan being third. But if you go into where the innovation is being driven, the U.S. right now accounts for about 50 percent of all uh, sort of clinical trial and research spend. Uh, China's number two uh, at about 14 percent. And then Japan and Korea, about five percent each. So there's a lot of innovation coming up from China. I think we're starting to see some products come to the market that were novel made in Asia therapies. And I'm thinking of things like Brukinza and Carpovicti. And so these are our made in China or innovated in China therapies coming to the global stage. So I think with like any market, you're going to get two-way exchange of ideas, products, talent. Um, and really, it's a great chance and, and opportunity for Western technologies to go to China and for Western companies to look at bringing Chinese innovative tech into the West. Let me ask you one question. Um, when I look towards um, bringing innovation to China, um, in 2017 um, and also in 2018, I had the... Uh, feeling that Chinese companies mostly look for drugs uh, and devices that are already on the market in Europe or in the United States 
or um, somewhere else in the world. Uh, whereas when I look at the deals uh, here in Europe and the United States, very often uh, pharma companies also start negotiating licensing deals or joint research collaborations uh, with early stage companies and with research organizations. Uh, how is the appetite of uh, Chinese pharma companies these days? Are they still more focused uh, on already um, approved drugs or are they intending also to go a little bit earlier? So, I mean, I'll comment on the, on our clients that I have interacted with and our clients are really looking across the spectrum. It's obviously lower risk to take something that's ready to go straight to patients, though the price is always higher. A lot of our clients are realizing now that they want to see early ideas. And mm -hmm. just like a Western company, they're not going to do a deal on every early asset, but there's some really good ones that can find value. And I think it's been a huge shift between 2015, when I was looking at doing licensing deal into China, the Western technology, where they really wanted to close to commercialization. So now, as, as we're looking with our clients, at least in with the BFC group, there's a lot of interest up and down the innovation spectrum. So like anywhere, the more data you have, the more compelling the story is, the higher the price will be, but the lower the risk. And so it's always a game that every executive plays at every pharma company, Chinese, Western, doesn't matter where. Yeah, uh, yeah, Sorry. and to uh, taste point, yeah. Um, so if you take a look at of the uh, most, um, the, the highest number, uh, the number of the payments, I mean, in terms of the total deal size and upfront payment happening in the past couple of years, you can see most of them are the clinical stage asset rather than market asset. So the China biotech companies, they are becoming more professional and the science team can really understand the data and also the MOAs of these innovative drugs. So they are looking for the assets in the clinical stage. And nowadays, uh, it's becoming very um, competitive for the between the uh, biotech companies and pharmaceutical companies. If you started to look at assets very late, I mean, if you see you, you do not want to take any risk, then you are at nothing because all the good assets already take over uh, when it's still in clinical stage. So if you, I mean, for the market asset, uh, you will not get a chance to get it now because China companies are already getting it when it's still at early stage. Yeah, this is uh, this changed a lot in my opinion for the strategies of the company so far. When uh, I was I was asked for advice uh, how to set up the outlicensing out strategy of companies here in Europe, I recommended uh, look first towards Europe. Then, when you need uh, more capital and wants to outlicense early, go to the United States uh, because there is an appetite there. And when you look towards China. Um, focus more on uh, drugs that are already on the market because uh, this is the core focus um, of Chinese pharma companies. And um, when I understood you right now, uh, this changed completely. So that China is now also uh, going early stage and it makes sense for life science companies that are not yet on the market already to start uh, taking up talks with Chinese pharma companies. Is that right? Yes, that's correct. Um, you know, it really comes down to you know, making sure you, you have a good data package. Um, but that being said, innovation is innovation. Humans are everywhere and these markets are massive. And so, you know, deals that I looked at in 2017 were really heavily back and loaded, no upfront payments and really sort of, you know, a lot of work without a lot of return. Now, BFC clients are actually getting significant upfront milestones in certain cases if their technology is very compelling. Yeah, in the past uh, few years, like most of our BFC clients coming to China are 
uh, still in clinical phase one stage. And so there are a lot of people looking at the asset and also received a lot of uh, term sheets on this clinic phase one clinical asset. Yeah, so it is um, uh, changing compared to the 2017. Phase one already. It's really early. Yeah, phase one. On um, phase one, phase two. Sometimes, yeah, I mean, definitely people are asking for POC data, right? They want to direct the asset, but some biotech companies, they have the scientists coming back from the United States and they've been working for MNCs and also very um, uh, cutting edge companies previously. So they understand the technology and they can take some risk. This uh, takes me to the next question that uh, I think is also key to success when starting negotiating with companies. It's uh, obviously the question, what's the focus in terms of therapeutic areas of uh, Chinese companies these days, especially in the next five years, uh, Tis and Shirley? Sure, I'll, I'll start with uh, things that are not appealing. You know, And it's, it's a really interesting way to think about it. In the US right now, if you start a company looking at rare disease, you get a lot of support. There's big vouchers. There's big bonuses, incentives. But the Chinese philosophy, as far as we see it, towards innovation isn't really an expensive therapy that only helps a few people. You know, China is looking at their payment reimbursement system and how do they treat the population as a whole. So there's a lot of interest in things where there's broad patient access uh, and a lot of therapies. The rare diseases are trickier. I think that you can do some rare disease work on your clinical trial work. But there's a market where you can get a priority review voucher or one of these other orphan drug designations. That's not as straightforward or as much of an incentive to do work into China. Um, I think as you look at under medical need, they're always there. We see them across every disease state. There's always room for innovation. And the big markets where you can treat a lot of people with meaningful benefits really get rewarded in China. The ones that don't as much is really on the rare disease side. But there's a flip side of the coin, which is that the China market really rewards innovation in, in antibiotic research. So I think in the West, with the recent you know, global pandemics, there's been more of an interest in the bio research. There isn't a lot of innovation on the antifungal side. Mm -hmm. But in China, there's a huge push on the antibacterial side. So uh, Chinese payers, hospitals, physicians are willing to reward innovation for advances in antimicrobial therapy. And that's a very interesting therapeutic area for Chinese companies to license in. If you're trying to bring an antibiotic and antibacterial to the U.S. market, it's very, very tough on the capital markets and reimbursement side. Yeah, that's true. I mean, my first company in the life science industry was a spin-out from Novartis. Uh, it was Nopriva. The uh, department was built by Rodka Novak, uh, who now runs CRISPR Therapeutics. And uh, it was in the antibiotic space. Uh, the plans that we had in 2006 uh, were great, but I think in the last 10 years, it changed a lot in Europe and the United States. It's not the most attractive market. I think the only company here in Europe that's doing something in that area is currently BioNTech, um, who starts not only doing uh, antiviral research, but also antibacterial research. Um, how is the situation? How many companies uh, are active in China in that area? What are the, um, the front runners in that area? Yeah, I would say um, cancer is always uh, a hot area, no matter the previous, uh, whether the previous or the trend in the future. Um, um, if, um, I, I didn't share the slide about breakdown of the mm -hmm. uh, in licensing in terms of the therapeutic area, but if I share that slide, you will see that uh, cancer is always the number one every single year, the in licensing and also the out licensing. Um, yeah, and 
I mean, the biotech companies, they understand about cancer and also uh, they understand about the unmet medical needs here in China and standard of care and the reimbursement is uh, good here for cancer. So cancer is always a hot topic. And as Tays mentioned, anti-infections, um, I would say that would be a second hardest area. The antibiotics, um, although um, there are some re- restrictions in the hospital, if you enter into one antibiotics drug, you have to kick out another one. But as long as you prove it's uh, superior than the current ones, or it's first in class, better the best in class, or um, it's uh, um, uh, solve some uh, unmet medical needs. You will get opportunities here. Which, which is, Sir Christian, I mean that's completely different than the U.S. perspective. When I did, you know, keep any the research with infectious disease physicians, I say I have a new drug here. It's better, superior. They say wonderful. We will never use it. We'll save it just in case. And so you can have the most amazing antibacterial ever. Everyone will think you're absolutely wonderful, but they won't buy a single dose. So you get zero rewards for innovation. Whereas in China, it's the opposite. It, you know, yes, something has to go that doesn't work, but they will definitely reward innovation in the antibacterial space. That's good to know. What are the major players in cancer and antibacterials on the Chinese market? Stay with us. We'll be right back. Money is all around us, and we think about it more than almost every other aspect of our lives. But how can we make more of it, and what's our drive for building wealth beyond just the numbers in our bank account? Join us on the Make More podcast as our host Matt Heslin brings to you a dynamic lineup of experts in the world of investing, business, health, and beyond. Together, they unpack the secrets to not just surviving, but thriving in today's economy. It's about more than just wealth. It's about crafting life experiences, seizing opportunities, and building a legacy. Subscribe now to the Make More with Matt Heslin podcast and join us every week for new expert insights and inspiration. Um, for the antibiotics, I would say a lot of uh, traditional pharmaceuticals, they are in this area. You know, there is a lot of antibiotics, there are generics, right? So a lot of uh, uh, traditional pharmaceuticals, they are very good at uh, commercialization. Mm-hmm. And they started the company by commercialized drugs. So um, those traditional pharmaceuticals, they know how to sell this antibiotics. And they have this network and sales force with uh, hospitals. In terms of cancer, I would say biotech companies. They will be um, uh, they will be more interested in the uh, cancer, such as Xilabs, uh, Beijing, Arist. You probably see those names uh, in the past few years when they do the in licensing deals. Um, so uh, traditional pharmaceuticals like Qilu, Yangtze River, they started to catching up and they did some deals deals as well. So um, traditional pharmaceuticals, they trying to transform to the innovative company as well. So there's a lot of opportunities. So I'd like to, you know, jump in right here. Also, we haven't touched on the huge market potential in China for chronic diseases. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, of course, you know, underscoring Shirley's point that cancer is king at this point, but, you know, with the aging population worldwide, not just in China, you know, companies and governments are looking for innovative new therapies, uh, neurodegeneration, 
uh, heart disease, uh, diabetes, just to name a few, neuropathy, uh, pain. These are really rich areas for innovative companies outside of China and within and domestically to really target if they have good ideas, if they have good technology to really not neglect China. And many companies we see now that are outside of China have a two-pronged approach. They have a Western strategy, be it European or the US, and simultaneously in tandem in China as well. So it's not as an afterthought, but really part of the strategy uh, moving forward in terms of monetizing their you know, innovation uh, globally, truly globally, not just regional. You know, a lot of companies traditionally think of the US and Europe as global, but I think we really need to educate the whole you know, sector that global should really mean global um, and take into account uh, other regions that have you know, not been the focus for many biotechs for whatever reason. Um, so just- yeah, I mean, I, mean, I, mean I, I think about my old company as a great poster child of that where KBP Bioscience is an interesting private company based in Jinan, China and the US. They have a phase three asset for hypertension, a small molecule in patients with chronic kidney disease. At the same time, also a novel antibacterial with both IV and oral formulations, right? And so again, these are things that really resonate with Chinese markets, consumers, large patient bases, innovation desperately needed. Um, and ultimately, this is really the goal for China innovation. It's not usually a, not, it used to be very much a uh, me too kind of products. And now there's a big push for me first or me better. And I think that's really been a shift in how R&D heads think about their pipeline. Great points, excellent points. Uh, let's say a little bit about the, uh, let's say, go-to-market in China strategy. I remember, and other points that are also important uh, when we think about that, um, I remember conversations from uh, 14, 15 years ago. Um, there's always the question when we take a small molecule or other innovation out of the research organizations, uh, where should we seek a patent protection? And the usual conversation back in 2006, 7 and 8 was um, we seek protection in Europe and usually the major market. It's the United Kingdom, it's uh, Germany, it's France, it's uh, I think also a little bit of Spain and Italy, the United States. And then when I raised the question, say, what about China? The usual answer I got was uh, we don't file anything in China because uh, at the end of the day, um, we are focusing on developing for the core markets uh, for Europe and for the United States. And we don't understand China anyways. And the chance of uh, selling or licensing something to Chinese companies is very, uh, very little. So we don't fight it. Is that still um, a good strategy or was the strategy ever a good strategy? Oh, my gosh. That, so I, without <laughs> naming and shaming people too much. That was the common strategy that people had, especially tech transfer offices at universities. And people are looking to save a, you know, a few thousand dollars on patent filing costs. That's probably the most expensive make, mistake they ever could have made mm -hmm. in their career. And you know, if you're going to do a deal in China right now, you must have your IP. Clinical data won't suffice. You have to have IP there as well. It's not that hard to do. There's extraordinary harmonization for intellectual property guidelines and also for clinical trial guidelines with China being a member of the ICH. 
So the best thing for any innovator to do is protect the rights in China because the intellectual property is honored, it's enforced, and it's worth a lot of money. What's the consequence yeah. if a company doesn't do that? Yeah, I would say if a company doesn't have a IP protection here in China, it's almost a dead for the partnering in China. Um, and um, China partners, um, potential partners, uh, if we outreach to them for asset, the first couple of questions they will ask is what is expiry date of the composition of matters in China? If we tell them there's no uh, composition of matters here in China, oh no, we're not going to take a look at this asset. So um, this is very important. So if I um, haven't fired IP in China, better to do it as soon as possible. Um, so this, uh, as Tay said, it will be the most expensive uh, 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 cost in your career. <laughs> Do, is it possible to repair that later down the road? I think there is a couple of years time uh, to file uh, for patent protection. And uh, when the time is passed, then there is no chance anymore. Do you see any possibilities for companies that didn't uh, uh, seek protection in China that they can repair that? So it's um, so none of us are patent attorneys on, on the call here, so we don't want to give advice. But I think the advice is talk to a patent attorney, right? Because the, every story is different. If there's a method mm -hmm. or a process or a dosage, you know, there are some other patents that you can start to work with. But really, the core thing that most people should be thinking about is composition of matter. Once you have that, then you can look at a more extensive blocking strategies. And the same thing in China as everywhere else. That's great. Uh, what other points do you think are important? Um, it's important for companies who would like to bring innovation to Chinese markets. There's an awful lot. So I think let's uh, break that question into two pieces. <laughs> um, so I think, I, I, if you don't mind, I'll start with the regulatory things that I've seen. And it's so important to have a good local Chinese partner on the regulatory side. And so in the, in the Western markets, we're used to being slight changes in the approval process and the requirements for getting a drug approved, phase one, phase two, phase three. China really revamps things so frequently in terms of the rules, in terms of if it's only Chinese data, if you, when you have to have Chinese data, when you do something called a bridging study, uh, which means you sort of look at a genetically group of patients who are not Chinese and the patients who are genetically Chinese and sort of demonstrate that there is bioequivalency or, or comparability. So it's really, you know, as you're thinking about your drug development pathway, you really want to think about where you do your, your, your trial work. At the end of the day, you're going to do your work. You're going to get good quality data. But if you're going to go into China for a commercial market or clinical trial market, you'll need to have done that bridging studies. There are some smarter jurisdictions where you can get ethnically Chinese patients or ethnically Asian patients. But at the end of the day, it's worth working with a good Chinese CRO to actually go and do it the normal way, meaning get the approval, submit your data, show that it's safe in, in animals, if you have any human data as well but really get a Chinese regulatory expert because at this point what you're seeing, you know, with only Chinese data going to the U.S. or only U.S. data going to China, it doesn't work anymore. Um, and it's not that it's not trusted. There's a lot of push to make sure that there are, you're addressing the, the genetic composition of the patient population where you're trying to get approval. And you're seeing that a uh, big push from the FDA. Um, I haven't seen as much in Europe, but you're definitely seeing it in China too. So step one is really think about where you do those studies and spend the money to do it high quality. And so it doesn't, if you do a poor quality study in the US, it's not valid anywhere in the world. If you do a poor quality study in China, it's not really valid anywhere in the world, even in China. High quality studies will always win with high quality data. 
Yeah. Um, another another very important considerations. I think um, a lot of um, our clients first come to us didn't think about that is the cost of goods sold. So you know, um, especially for the any uh, antibodies, the cost of goods sold in the U.S. and the European uh, countries is not very um, big issue or problem because of the pricing can cover its cost. So, but in China, the pricing is a huge difference between a uh, uh, um, uh, huge difference from the U.S. and European countries. So, whether the China pricing can cover the cost of goods. Um, in the U.S. or in the Europe is a big question. Um, so uh, most of the times, the China biotech companies, they may ask for whether we can do a tech transfer, whether we can localize the manufacturing, and we have to assess uh, what is the cost of goods here in China. If it's low enough and we can um, we can compete with other competitive drugs, if it's really high and you know, the sales and the marketing costs are already very high. If the cost of good sales still high, we cannot um, get this drug. There's no profit for the company anymore. So um, companies may think about the cost of good sales uh, when considering to work with a China company or enter into China market. So, I mean, Christian, there's, there's, a little... the pricing. Yeah, there's, there's a real dynamic here that I think it's important for the listeners to think about which is that in the U.S. Uh, especially, if you get a drug approved and reimbursed, every year after that, you work pretty hard to take price increases, and they tend to go through. Uh, in China, it's the other way around. Every, you, know, you get your drug approved and reimbursed, there's a lot of pressure every year for price decreases. And so the expectation is that prices will go down. So you need to really understand your margins and really understand what you'll do at scale, recognizing that you can get huge volumes of your drug through. What does that mean for your profitability? Mm. Yeah, so uh, when the uh, drug is listed in the reimbursement, national reimbursement list, the price normally will cut 50%. And then uh, after you list it in the reimbursement list, and there will be a volume-based procurement. Mm. And if you enter into a volume-based procurement list, then the price will even cut. Maybe sometimes it may cut 80% or even more, but I mean, let's be conservative. Let's uh, cut 50%. Then it's already like 75% cutting there. So pricing is not very friendly. Uh, so we have to take a look at of the cost very closely. But um, what is the thinking behind the pricing? Is the, the, the approach to make uh, medicine affordable for everybody? Uh, I mean, it's yeah. a bit different in the United States. Yeah, it's trying to make um, the patients affordable for this uh, innovative drugs, also generic drugs. Mm -hmm. I, I think there's another word that comes in as well, not just affordability, but accessibility. Mm -hmm. And so it's really, the goal is really making sure that uh, patients can have access, not to everything, but really the regulators take an active approach, what's in the formula, what isn't. Um, so you do get some of that, for example, in U.S. hospitals, um, where you get you know, big push for formularies, but not really system-wide. Uh, whereas in China, it's very much accessibility and affordability. So it's not like you have to sell below cost. Um, you really need to really make sure that you're doing things in a very thoughtful fashion. But then basically, it's uh, you enter a 1.4 billion people market, theoretically. So it's... Uh, yeah. Right. It's so just, just to add a little bit to, you know, the thoughts on when you set up your clinical trial, the data mm -hmm. from Western companies, or, you know, outside of China, taking it in. 
I think there's a lot of push now, not just for cancer, but in other diseases, particularly in chronic diseases, about the use of biomarkers. So if you have data quality outside of China, using biomarkers to really, you know, demonstrate that your drugs, your technology, your innovation is really going to affect and, you know, really bring good data in China. You can really design your trials, not just just a bridging, but really to target the market and target the segment and to really demonstrate the utility of your technology. And also, I think, um, you know, to the point where you want to, you know, think about price, I think it's not just price, but like tasted accessibility. There's a growing middle class in China that, you know, that are looking for changes, the quality of life, not, uh, you know, not just the, the, shall we say, getting through the day, but really the quality of life is really first and foremost on a lot of um, you know, patients' minds. And that's what we want to bring too, is uh, you know, alleviation of pain and suffering and mm-hmm. quality of life to as big a you know, segment as possible for the best price, obviously. That's a great approach. I like it. Um, can we stay? You mentioned before clinical strategy. Can we stay a little bit uh, or expand on that topic a little bit uh, before we dive into other ones? When I think about financing uh, life science projects, uh, I mean, I think everybody knows that they are pretty costly to bring it to the market. And for a finance guy, I think the ideal perspective on uh, data would be that uh, we do preclinical uh, trials in Europe. Uh, we do clinical trials uh, once in Europe, phase one, phase two, and phase three, and then the data gets accepted in all regions. And uh, similarly in China, so that also Europe accepts the data and uh, in the United States. How is the situation currently uh, when we look at clinical trials? Um, at, is the data uh, accepted? Do companies need bridging studies? Do companies need um, doing the same study uh, in China and in Europe and the United States? What's your expertise in that area? So um, my experience with having just gone through these uh, negotiations with the various regulators is that you have to have bridging studies. And Mm -hmm. so it doesn't really matter, even if your target is a bacteria, right? You still need to have a bridging study in humans to see how does the drug work in a human. And so it's so important to have that, um, that bridging study sort of queued up. You can do the bridging study in a way that is either very inexpensive, so you do very quick sort of bioavailability, or you can do slightly broader, which is actually getting sort of efficacy data as well. And I think anytime you're spending the energy and time to get data from patients, get as much data as you can, because always, if you answer questions earlier, it's cheaper than answering them later, right, in much larger patient groups. And so I think the bridging studies are important. It's also important to do multicultural enrollment and multi-country enrollment. You know, not necessarily phase two that adds complexity, but, you know, going into phase three, the more countries you have, the better. And even just to run parallel programs for a drug. For example, if you have two different indications in the same drug, do one phase two in China, do one in the West, and then combine to have the safety exposure data for both ethnically Chinese patients for the China market and as well as Western patients. And so there are some, you know, thoughtful ways to, you know, to get sort of a two for one kind of deal. Yeah, I I agree with Tay. So bridge and trial is um 
uh, based on the cases I've seen that most of, uh, of almost all the uh, cases that you have to do the bridging trials. And sometimes the uh, China FDA, they may ask for, and they will absolutely take a look at of the uh, data outside China. They will take it as a reference. Uh, it's better if you already have a few China patients on um, when mm. you recruited uh, outside China. Uh, so that is um, uh, a plus. And um, but sometimes, uh, even though you not only the clinical data, you also have to take a look at the preclinical data. I have a client that they um, they aim to uh, enter into the phase three directly in China, but they didn't even get an IND in China because the China uh, uh, FDA asked them to uh redo or conduct more preclinical studies so the regulator is very different and in china the ind is i would say it's sometimes it's even more restricted than the us so if the company wants to enter into china better to um consult the cro or start it to um, start the partnering process as early as possible with china companies even though you do not um, complete a deal immediately, but at least you will get a lot of feedback from China pharmaceutical companies. So those are valuable. Um, you don't not want to wait till the um, end that uh, FDA, uh, China FDA telling you that you have to conduct more preclinical trials while you are still considering to go to the phase three directly. So that's, it's, that's a huge gap there. Stay with us. We'll be right back. The Coaching Conversation 2024. This podcast is 100% dedicated to leadership and leadership within the workplace coaching area. We work with companies throughout the world teaching leaders how to coach their employees. This podcast is dedicated to teaching specific strategies, frameworks, coaching models, and now artificial intelligent strategies to help leaders drive greater teamwork, collaboration, cooperation, greater attitudes, better motivation, coaching career development, just to name a few. I hope you'll check out our podcast. That's true. Is it possible um, to do multi-center studies? So for example, I think if they see yeah. phase one to include sites in China and Europe or in the United States and also phase two and phase three, is that feasible or does, doesn't it make any sense in your opinion? It's very smart, but it's it's tricky to do. So you have to really do the do the work behind it because it's really a matter of timing. And so if one yeah. country is is slow, you may be done everything in time. And so that's why you always have to think through with your regulatory affairs team, what's the smartest way to go for ramp up time. But mm -hmm. yeah, I mean, obviously the more sites you do, but I think the, the other caveat there is that every country and every site adds more cost. And usually if your only business is phase one programs, you're really watching your cash carefully. So again, it's trade-offs everywhere. Uh, so this is actually um, another reason uh, why there's uh, many biotech companies come to us. They want to enter into China at a very early stage. 
So let's say um, they started the partnering process when they're still in uh, phase one, clinical phase one stage, and they close a deal with a China partner when they are in phase two. Then um, between the fa- uh, a deal close time to the fa- start of the phase three, China partner have the time to file the IND and conduct some bridging trials for the phase one. And then China companies can directly join the MRCT globally. So they were, so it will be beneficial for both China partner and the uh, biotech companies outside China. So it will save costs and also it will accelerate the uh, launch year in China. Uh, so that is a small way. And that's why a lot of a lot of companies enter into China earlier, starting from phase one. That's a lot of case we see, and that's the clinical development plan come uh, come up by the China partners. They want to enter into a multi-regional clinical trial. Yes, to add to that, I think that's a really important consideration. Uh, not you know, of course, cost as you know, small biotechs that you really need to watch the cash flow. But really, to, to Shirley's point, when you think about going to China, your partner and who you work with needs to be carefully considered um, I, because you really want to add to the valuation, uh, add to the value of your asset. And overall, um, you know, as you, uh, you know, as you mature, I think one of the things that I've heard from companies considering going to China is that they're so confused by, you know, they go to a partnering meeting and they meet with 20 potential, you know, partners and they can't figure out who is whom and what is what. And uh, I've also have uh, companies that tell me that they would be, you know, that they have considered, you know, engaging with, with a company like ours and they would have, you know, these consulting companies tell them, it's great, we'll get it to work out. Where else they have not really heard what are the pitfalls, uh, you know, and not every asset, not every strategy is, you know, perfect. It needs to be tweaked and you need to find the right partner. And so that process at the very beginning needs to be really carefully considered. So you don't go down a path that's going to cost you uh, later on in terms of your development and do damage to your asset in the long run. That's true. Uh, There's one question that pops up in my mind when you talk about partnering and finding the right partner in China. Um, What about the cultural similarities and differences and communication styles? Uh, How important are they these days? Um, what's What's your take on that? John and Chase may have a lot of experience on that one. <laughs> yeah, um, no, I'll, I'll go first. Um, so at the end of the day, it's like any uh, group you're trying to engage with. You want to get a personal connection. Uh, you want to educate and, um, and 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 not sell, but really educate and and, and talk to people about the data. But I, I, my own experience with some roadshows was very tricky, where I would um, start giving a presentation. I sort of pause for questions. And no questions, so I keep going and go through the whole presentation. And then, you know, culturally, that's when people start asking questions afterwards. And I end up giving the whole presentation twice because then each question had already been addressed on the slide. So 
it's very difficult. I think face-to-face um, helps a lot more than trying to do it over Zoom. You know, many sort of Zoom presentations, there's no cameras on, and it's really tricky. So the, the, the personal interaction is, is so important, especially when you have the language barrier too. And so I think yeah, it's like for any cultural awareness, being thoughtful about what's there, being really trying to uh, be clear with your messaging. But the most important thing I've found with the Chinese is being consistent. And so you may be asked the same question several times. It's not due to lack of comprehension. It's they really want to understand that you're consistent with your messaging, your approach, your conclusions, whatever that is. And so I think it's like any cultural awareness, right? You'd really be thoughtful about the person you're engaging with, try and listen, really give them opportunities to speak. Yeah, I think to speak to that, you know, as Shirley said, as Chase has already, you know, mentioned, I think it's important for smaller biotechs or, you know, to really try to understand first their asset and what their ultimate goal is. And also really to do the homework and go to partnering, uh, you know, listen to podcasts like yours, um, you know, try to educate. And I think from, you, you know, face-to-face is always great, but, you know, in terms of like partnering, uh, you know, conferences, and, but the important thing is to really try to find out what your uh, potential partners are looking for and to really reiterate the point. And, you know, culturally, uh, like Chase said, they may be reticent in trying to ask you a question. So maybe you need to take the proactive approach and ask for feedback. And then a lot of times that's when, you know, conversations really start. You ask for feedback and you keep, you know, reiterating your point and also to look at it from a different way. And also importantly, you know, most of the potential, all the, you know, potential partners in China, they all speak great English. You know, the language, these spoken, maybe the last frontier, so to speak. So it's important to speak, you know, not not to use a lot of colloquialism that you and I might understand, but may, you know, you completely miss the point mm-hmm. uh, in, a, in a conversation. So that that's always important. And, you know, it's like face-to-face. It's always great. And my role in the U.S. is really to bring that aspect to help educate uh, whether they eventually work with us or not, whether they eventually, you know, go into China uh, or not. The the first step is to really learn about the process and whether that is right for them. Is that a right strategy for them? And is this the right time? But it's never too early to learn. It's never too early to get the information. Um, you know, and knowledge is, you know, we're becoming one world, whether we like it or not, in many ways. Yeah, Especially in so. that. <laughs> no, it's, uh, it's great becoming a one world. I hope uh, that continues uh, also. Uh, it helps a lot. I mean, you mentioned English. Um, when I travels to China, I said, okay, English is not my mother tongue. Um, 
And for Chinese people, it's the same. So we're on the same page. And then I had conversations in China. And I mean, their English was basically perfect. So it was uh, like directly from Oxford or from Harvard. Uh, I was really impressed about the language skills. Uh, it was really great. Is that still is that still the case uh, that uh, English uh, is a good starting point uh, for conversations in China? I, I think sometimes you don't have a choice, right? So if you, <laughs> you know, if you have a learning a, Chinese, what's the other option? Yeah, um, no, and and it, and I think you're finding more and more multilingual uh, people graduating disease from universities, both Western um, students who are learning Mandarin and a lot of Mandarin uh, you know, speaking kids who are learning English. So it really feels like English is the universal doc, uh, language. I will say though, one really important thing for Chinese companies looking to go to the West is make sure your documentation is in English. And so it can be read. I think for Western companies going to China, there really isn't a need to translate um, you know, your technical documents in English is fine. Um, but it can also be really helpful though for mm -hmm. parts of your business plan to be professionally translated in advance into Mandarin or Chinese and your website too. It's actually not that hard to add a, a, a Mandarin option on your website. And if you're really targeting the, the China market, it creates a lot of goodwill because it lets people understand very quickly the high level concept. Yeah, but I think, you know, uh, our job, uh, a lot, part of a key aspect of our job for companies going to China and, you know, with Shirley's team is to really uh, have the information both in Chinese and in English. So it's available uh, to whichever company in whatever language that they would prefer, uh, you know, for communication, for dissemination of the data in order to facilitate a potential partnership. That is a very key important. And for the team, uh, you know, your China team, so to speak, to be able to communicate with you, the ex-China company, you know, hoping to go into China, be able to have a seamless connection with your potential clients in China and for your parent company outside of China. And, you know, in this age of Zoom, there should be no barrier. There should be no barrier. Seamless um, communication both ways in both languages. Let's so talk about Yeah, I think yeah. that that's that's something that count, that came out that really got accelerated you know with the pandemic unfortunately um, but that is one takeaway that's true when i um think that one of the other companies who listen to the podcast might consider um working on a china go to china strategy um what's your advice um should they do it alone initially so it's just um uh, like I did, taking a trip to China, going to conferences, or should they seek for a local partner first and then to to the China access uh, together? Um, so uh, I, I, I'm going to say this first: going to yeah. China on your own and just trying to discover things <laughs> is really fun, but completely unproductive. And so, if you actually want to get work done, don't use that approach. If you just want to have a good time, go for it. It can be really, really enjoyable to discover. I think you can save an awful lot of time and, and energy with introductions. And it, it's so important to have good introductions set up. The one surprising thing that I've noticed about any trip to China that I've done over the past uh, 12 years is that don't expect your full itinerary in advance. 
meaning, you know, you're used to say, okay, well, each day, which city will I be in and what are the meetings and can I get them all done before I step on the plane? And that's really not the case. I think a lot of meetings are done fairly quickly, not quite last minute, but mm-hmm. day of or day before and things get solidified because people's calendars are very, very dynamic. So I think, you know, like I've gone on a limb and taken some risk and said, great, I'll go to China, even though I don't know any meetings are set up. And yet, if you work with a partner like BFC, for example, when you land every day, your calendar will be completely full um, because it's really if they know for sure you're there, they'll set up meetings. They're not going to set them up until they know you're on the airplane. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, like, uh, um, yeah, if you engage an advisor like BFC, uh, we will be a tra- your translator. Uh, be your tour guide it will be very efficient <laughs> if you come to China um yeah but um uh speaking about uh, whether to go it along I would say most of our clients first come to us they have already tried by themselves and then when I ask them uh, who have you already communicated or had a conversation with China partners they always tell me the same names Zilab, Beijing, Everest, Chilu, uh, Sino, Farmer, and that's it. Uh, every time I hear about the same name, because those companies, they are very internationalized. They will come out, or come, uh, just go out and just um, outreach to a lot of biotech companies all over the world. But others, there's still many other good companies, biotech companies and traditional pharma companies. They are here. They have cash, but they're just not that internationalized. They are not doing PRs all over the world. They are more focusing on the China. So whether you have this um, um, access to these companies are very key questions. If you can find um, like 80% of these companies, just go it along. That's totally fine. I'm sure you can do the deal by yourself. But if not, it's better to uh, engage an advisor to help you to uh, outreach to this network because you cannot bet on Zilab Beijing because they didn't do a single deal this year, although they are amazing in the past few years. But this year, they didn't do a single one yet. So um. Um, and next is about experience, as Jan uh, said, whether you had experience to working with China companies, uh, not only the language, but also the culture. You know, a lot of decisions are made top down in China, but all the billiards, uh who you already contact with are uh, from uh, from the bottom uh, to the top. So it's very difficult. So uh, if you engage an advisor uh, such as BFC can help you to outreach to the senior management, the decision pathway will be much quicker. And also um, the negotiation skill that's the same all over the world is always a good to have a middleman to help you to negotiate and close the gap there. So I think there's some um, uh, a couple of things you have to think about when you decide to go it along or to engage an advisor. That's good. That's a great point. I mean, we are talking about uh, large scale transactions anyways, and I think that they just take time. We're talking about one, two, three years and not about small scale transactions. So it makes sense. Um, to have a larger footprint in China with a partner and um, uh, then walk together through the space. Um, I just realized that uh, we are already 70 minutes in this call and there are so amazing points uh, that 
I think we could easily expand on for another one or two hours uh, to talk about. Um, let me ask you one final question at the end, because funding usually, and we mentioned it very often in this call, is, is one of the key success factors. How is the availability of uh, private and public funds uh, in on the Chinese markets for companies who would like to pursue a go-to-China strategy? So um, I'll comment this in my own experience when trying to sort of raise capital in China for a global company. And I was amazed at how much cash was available. Mm-hmm. Um, and so there's a big appetite for investment. Um, there's a lot of appetite from both investors and multinationals and, and companies. Um, but the capital, it's not the money. It's really, really, you know, the money wants to go to work towards innovative ideas. So expect a fairly rigorous diligence process. Um, the one thing that's a little different actually between a, um, a Chinese deal and a Western deal is that you know there's a big time delay between actually agreeing on the deal and funding. So I think Western you know hedge fund managers are used to once they sign the deal, they know the price. They're usually ready to wire within a few days. Uh, Chinese investors will take a different approach where they'll agree the high level term sheet, then they'll do some more diligence um, and then finally get to a funding status. So the whole process takes about the same like the time, but it's a matter of, of when do you celebrate? And the only time to celebrate is once the deal is closed. Um, yeah. Um, so, um, yeah. Um, for uh, global companies come to China, and um, if uh, they want to um, um, looking for the fundraisings here from the China investors. So, one question a lot of the China investor will ask is, "What is your China angle? Uh, what is your plan in China?" Because they know and. Um, pretty much everything about China market, but they sometimes they barely know about the US market or the European market. Uh, if your plan is to, let's say, IPO in Europe, um, uh, Switzerland or France, they don't even know about the capital market there, but the only thing they know is what's your plan in China. So if they can um, make profit or return on your China market, there's a good opportunity to get their fund. Um, but if it solely depends on their overseas business, I think it will be a little bit different, uh, uh, difficult. And also for some global funds, they do have, uh, let's say, US, uh, US office, China office, European office. So if you come to China office, they will mainly focus on the China. If, if it's only uh, if it's not there's no China angle, they will just refer to the European or the U.S. office. It's not their responsibility to take over this case. So uh, it's better to have a China angle. Whether um, you want to um, find a partner here in China, or you can find a partner with their investors portfolio company here in China. Or um, if the CEO is uh, Chinese, that would be even better. Or at least there's some uh, Chinese face in their company who have very deep insight about the China market. Shali Tis and Jian, would you like to add one final statement uh, before we wrap it up? Sure, I'll, uh, I'll start. Yeah, so I mean, looking at the first quarter of 2022, 18 new drugs were approved in China. 12 of them came from the West. You know, China is a terrific market for innovation and to commercialize the second largest in the world. I think it's really important for innovation to look to China for both 
investment, partnering, product approvals, and registration. And so I think it's an exciting time to be in biotech. Just to add to that, um, you know, if you're uh, if you believe in your innovation, if you believe that your technology innovation has a place in healthcare, you must consider China uh, now or later. But it must be in your thinking. Um, otherwise, you are not forward thinking, and you're doing a disservice to your company. Yeah, I would say um, um, plan about China, uh, plan the the China strategy as early as possible. Uh, even though you may not want to do an immediate uh, deal at this moment, but it's better to get some feedback from the China partners, potential partners. It will be beneficial for your future clinical development plan. Jian, Shirley, this thank you very much for this amazing conversation. I learned a lot of new things about the go to. Mark, go to China market strategy, and I hope we can catch up pretty soon. All right. Thank, Thank you. you. Thanks for having us, Christian. Have a great day. Bye. Thank you. Bye-bye. Do you enjoy this episode? Then please like, follow, and share. Have a great day.